Reflections on Shakespeare's King Lear by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 2 What I've decided to do is to uh, talk about both Acts 2 and 3 today. Well, our attention in this play is drawn to two things. It's drawn to Lear and his spiritual struggle, which begins when he is when he is expelled from the culture and uh, and experiences the crisis that, that that precipitates. At first, his struggle is external, or he, he at least perceives it externally, but as things progress, it's recognized uh, by all, including the audience, that it's really an internal struggle. So the, the play invites us to, to focus on that issue. And secondly, invites us to take a look at social order. And it's the social order in which Lear has been heretofore not so much a player as a living ritual gesture. That is to say, he's a king. And a king in a functioning monarchy uh, is a is a ritual figure. Lear is plucked out of his ritual role as king by a combination of his own and his daughter's maneuvering. Girard mentioned in one of his writings, royalty is a mythology in action. And if royalty is a mythology in action, then the king is the center of a ritual, a highly mythologized ritual. It's linchpin, not to be too, uh, not to pun too much, I say pun because, as we said last week, anthropologically, a king is a scapegoat with a suspended sentence. So the king is the linchpin in the social order, serving a ritual function of centering the the culture. And the withdrawal of that linchpin or that centering gesture throws into turmoil the myth and the cultural ritual. So the play proceeds with uh, Lear wrestling with the fact of no cultural context for his existence and the culture wrestling with the fact that the ritual is empty at the center. Now, perhaps I should just repeat those two existential problems to see if you know of any place where they might be still problematic. Uh, Lear is wandering the heath with no cultural context for his existence and the social order is careening about with no center, ritual center of gravity. So there's a crisis. The spiritual question implicit in the crisis is, will anyone get a glimpse of the kingdom, to use the New Testament terminology, what Jesus calls the kingdom, better translates, I think, the reign of God. It was, it was the, the idiom in which Jesus spoke of what it would be like to live with one another uh, other than in this shabby little enterprise we call history, uh, uh, it is not. It is not inherently a metaphysical concept referring to something that happens after you die. It's a. It's. Uh, it refers to a way of living, a way of being. But uh, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, kind of a uh, thing. But in any case, let's go back. So we have we have a crisis. A king without a culture, a culture without a center. In phase one of the crisis, 
I want to talk in a minute about the pre-crisis situation, but for right now, in phase one of the crisis, a unity can be achieved, which is an, a unity, it's really a false unity, pseudo-unity, but it's an, a unity of alliances against the old order. Monarchy and dictatorship are, are the best in terms of an old order in this situation because they keep the hostilities more keenly focused and make more dramatic and therefore more effective the execution of the fallen leader should such a complete reversion to the cult of primitive uh, sacrificiality be called for. So there is a kind of unity that lasts for as long as it takes for the various alliances to converge and eliminate the, the uh, ritual entity that represents the old order. So it will seem like uh, the, the unity will extend. There's a parallel to the, this process described by Walter Lippmann in his book, A Preface to Morals, which, by the way, is written in 1929. It, it's a tremendously insightful uh, book, I think. And he says this, I'll just quote a little passage from Walter Lippmann. He says, For the smashing of idols is in itself such a preoccupation that it is almost impossible for the iconoclast to look clearly into the future when there will not be many idols left to smash. What kind of world will be left when all the boobs and yokels have crawled back in their holes and have died of shame? The rebel, while he is making his attack, is not likely to feel the need to answer such questions. For he moves in an unreal environment, one might say a parasitic environment. As he wrestles with the demons, he leans upon them. By inversion, they offer him much the same kind of support which the conformer enjoys. They provide him with an objective which enables him to know exactly what he thinks he wants to do. His energies are focused by his indignation. Well, the energies of uh, Regan and Goneril and their husbands and so on are not focused by indignation, though they they sometimes characterize themselves that way. They're, they're focused by a mimetic desire for power and mimetic rivalry that comes from trying to get it. But in any case, you have this first phase of the crisis in which there is a kind of seeming unity among the alliances that have, uh, that have uh, allied themselves in order to to rid themselves of the old order. There's a double bind in this, of course, which is implicit in Lippmann's analysis. The supposed struggle for a new order is waged against the only living symbol of order that there is. The more it succeeds, the more it fails. Unless the final violence by which, it is, by which the old order is eliminated achieves religious awe. That's the only way to establish a new order, a, a, a reliable new order, is to have the final violence that is a, a, that, that's spent on eliminating the old order achieve a kind of religious awe. That is to say uh, that the violence that eliminates the old king uh, amount to sacred violence. But that's an eventuality that grows increasingly remote as the culture in question comes into contact with the radically demythologizing text such as the biblical prophets and the gospels increasingly difficult to achieve sacralized violence in a world uh, that honors or pretends to honor a text which has declared all sacralized violence to be defunct and uh, and uh, a lie so 
I'm, I'm doing this very quickly, I, I realize and you realize. An epic of cultural peace with the king at the center and uh, all's right with the world. We have evidence, textual evidence in this uh, play that there, that that has already begun to unravel, that the old king uh, is too old and that uh, the other people are wanting to take over and so on. There's evidence of that in the play. But in any case, we, we can hypothesize a cultural peace with the king at the center. And the second one is cultural disorder with, with the king suddenly, the king suddenly becomes what we call, quote, the center of controversy. So you still have a center, but it's a center that has to do with how do we get rid of him. And it's, a, it's the, the period in which the two dukedoms find themselves in alliance. At least the, the two daughters of Lear are in alliance to, to sort of get him out of the picture. And then we get the third phase of the, of the thing, which is the one in which the king disappears. In this case, uh, disappears uh, into the wilderness. And then you have no center at all. And that's what Yeats was talking about in his poem, The Second Coming, turning and turning in the widening gyre. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed. That's what Girard calls the crisis of distinction. It's a sacrificial crisis. No center of gravity. And, uh, and, no, and therefore, no normal cultural order on one hand, nor is there a kind of uh, polarized revolutionary order on the other because the object of the, of the mutual contempt has disappeared. And so suddenly the, the hostilities begin to go off in all directions. I brought, not that I need to do this, you know as well as I do, but I brought two, a couple of things from the news this week. Uh, the two most graphic uh, are from Romania. And here are two photographs. I, I uh, enlarged them slightly. They, they were in this week's New York Times. This first one was in yesterday's New York Times. And uh, it shows a large crowd. And the caption says, Romanians beating an ethnic Hungarian yesterday, uh, etc., etc. And uh, it's, you can see there is one person in the middle of that mob. Now, this is strange. This is strange behavior. These are the people, the Hungarians and Romanians, are the people who were in an alliance to get rid of Ceausescu. No hostilities during that period of alliance. He's eliminated, and now they're at each other's throats. Now that's just a that's just a historic a contemporary historical example of exactly the dynamics I've been trying to suggest here. And it's in King Lear. I mean, it's every it's everywhere in Shakespeare. This one is from day before yesterday, and is even more alarming. And again, it's in Romania. And it the caption says, "Club wielding demonstrators encircle a man killed Tuesday, kill, excuse me, killed Tuesday night in Transylvania." And there you have it: uh, a man, a dead man, lying on the ground. And these uh, eight or ten people with clubs circling around. This is this is you know this isn't some quaint uh, anthropological study about a primitive cult. Always tend to write it off by saying, "Well, you see those those crazy people over there in Transylvania 
But yesterday, just to keep it a little closer to home, yesterday I was listening to the radio version of McNeil there. And uh, I didn't, unfortunately, I'm sure they had the, the actual ads uh, on the television version, but they were talking about political campaigning, and they used, uh, perhaps some of you saw it, they spoke about this Texas gubernatorial race in which uh, the, the politicians are playing what they call hardball, you see. And the issue was, which of these three candidates is more willing, and I would almost say more eager, to, uh, to uh, perform what we call capital punishment on criminals? Which is more eager than the other? Because whoever is will certainly get elected. And the ads ex with, uh, nakedly proclaimed it to be so. Uh, each ad says, the current governor says, I have actually executed 35 of these people. And these other two people are just talking about it. So I offer those as instance, just instances of the kind of craziness that happens in a culture when it loses its center of gravity. Now, Gloucester's, if I may go back to Act 1 for a second, Gloucester um, expressed his alarm at what was happening in his society. Now, Gloucester's a kind of superstitious guy. And he is so more or less throughout the play. But he says, these late eclipses in the sun and moon portend no good to us. Now there was a, there, there, Shakespeare finished this play in, around Christmas of 1605 and there had been an eclipse of the, of the sun in, in October and of the moon in the month earlier. And it had caused some, some anxiety on the part of the uh, of the population, and so Shakespeare's playing with that. Uh, but Gloucester goes on, these late eclipses in the sun and moon portend no good to us. Though the wisdom of nature can reason it thus and thus, yet nature finds itself scourged by the sequent effects. Love cools, friendship falls off, brothers divide, in cities mutinies, in countries discord, in palaces treason, and the bond cracked twixt son and father. And he goes on to talk about the machinations, hollowness, treachery, and all ruinous disorders follow us disquietly to the, to the grave. And his, his bastard son, Edmund, scoffs at all that. Edmund thinks we're just villains because we're, we, we're villains. And they're both right, of course. They're both right. Although astrologically, I wouldn't, wouldn't ascribe it to the astrological premise. But the point is that something is happening that's larger than just the individual. Something is letting loose certain passions in the society that cannot be analyzed in terms of individual uh, uh, evil or culpability. But again, when Edmund uses that same art, uh, argument to entangle his brother Edgar into, into his little uh, uh, plot, which is to take over, to take his brother's land, he uses Gloucester's uh, concern about, his astro Gloucester's astrological concern, and he says to Edgar, these eclipses do pretend these divisions. And they have a little discussion about astrology there for a second. And uh, Edmund says, as, excuse me, he says, the effects that this astrologer I read uh, writes about are happening. He says, as of unnaturalness between the child and the parent, death, dearth, disillusions of ancient amities, divisions in state, menaces and maledictions against king and nobles, heedless diffidences, 
banishment of friends, dissipation of cohorts, nuptial breaches, and I know not what. Now, there's, there's language to this effect in, in almost every Shakespearean play. Shakespeare, particularly the later ones, Shakespeare is tremendously preoccupied with this event. It, in a sense, this event gives him the stuff for his best play. It's the, it's the most intriguing stuff because it's when culture falls apart and you can see something about us human beings that you don't notice when it's intact. When culture is intact, it is, is just as sacrificial as it is when the, when the mobs start circling the victim with their clubs. But it is an attenuated, civilized form of the sacrificial enterprise. And, uh, and, and therefore, it would make a boring play. And so Shakespeare always starts with this, because then it just erupts, and we see how what's really going on. It surfaces. But what I want to look at here, because it does play such a role in this play, is the what, what Gloucester calls the bond-cracked twixt son and father, or Edmund calls the unnaturalness between child and parent. In other words, the, the discord in the family structure itself. In the Ulysses speech that I quoted last week, the great speech of Ulysses and Troilus and Cressida, he speaks of this crisis, this sacrificial crisis, crisis of dis- degree, or what Gerard calls the crisis of distinction. And uh, among other of the many things he says of it, he says, strength should be lord of imbecility, and the rude son should strike his father dead. So again, over and over in Shakespeare, you get when you get the references to this crisis, they're always laced with references to a breakdown uh, within the family structure. And that, of course, is not because Shakespeare romanticized the family. If you'll remember back uh, the way this play began, when it began with Cordelia being very cool uh, about her family obligation. She said to Lear, uh, unhappy, unhappy that I am, I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. I love your majesty according to my bond, no more, no less. Uh, but this is not some idealizing of the family. Why, why is Shakespeare concerned with the family, the breakdown of the family? Because it's a symptom of how uh, of how contagious and epidemic the social insanity is when it breaks into the family. One of the interesting things about Jesus uh, these these days in, con- in contemporary popular uh, Christianity. Uh, you would think that the purpose of the New Testament was to uh, was to support the family, uh, but if you read the actual text, uh, it almost is the opposite of that. Uh, Jesus has very little to say about the family, and almost none of it is uh, is is uh, synthetic. So uh, the family is is a conservative institution, for better or worse. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says. Do you suppose I came to bring peace to the earth? It is not peace that I have come to bring, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. That's pretty strong talk, you see. The reason for that, I think, is this. The family system itself is a sacrificial system. That is to say, it often achieves its own, or I would say most often, achieves its own harmony 
because by relying on the sacrificial mechanism. That is to say, either because there is an external object of shared contempt, external to the family, that the family agrees is the problem. That's the, the, some other group or other thing out there in society. Or there's a black sheep in the family. And both of those are sacrificial systems. Both of those are scapegoating systems. Achieve the family harmony at the expense of the scapegoat. And the, what the Matthew passage implies is that if and when the Gospels drag such unacknowledged mechanisms into the light and call such scapegoating sufficiently into question, then the harmony that relies upon it will vanish. And so Jesus says, I, I, you think I came to bring peace? Wait till you see what happens when your scapegoating system is exposed and can no longer smoothly function. Now you'll find out that... Uh, that the hostilities that it uh, avoided will be there, and you'll have to deal with it. Be that as it may, the family is a conservative unit for better or for worse, and it's culturally central, and maybe that's why it's so conservative. Uh, I don't want to be quite as hard on the family as the New Testament is, if you don't mind. Uh, The family, as a conservative unit, is the last holdout against the invasion of social insanity, though it may create its own little system of insanity as part of the holding out. So it's an alarming indication at which Shakespeare was repeatedly alarmed to find that the mimetic frenzy of the larger social system has invaded the family confines. On the other hand, when things get this crazy, uh, the people caught up in that are very intolerant of any pockets in the social order that are not equally caught up in it. That is to say, those who are not caught up in this frenzy are, are quickly considered part of the problem. That is to say, they, they haven't seen what the absolute zeal that's required of the present moment, and they're indulging in these bourgeois uh, idiocies when in fact we ought to be doing something about this. You see, that kind of stuff. There will be victims of all this insanity, and the victims will belong to somebody's family. And the question of the effectiveness of the of the victimization, one of the issues will be whether or not their families go along with it. If we're going to have a sacrificial event, we've got to have unanimity minus one, and the one is the victim. So we have to bring everybody into it. Now, the one is going to have family members. That means we've got to bring family members into it. That means we can't have this little conservative holdout over here that hangs on to these affections because that's going to that's going to keep the sacrificial episode from being definitive. But I know this is getting kind of bizarre and labyrinthine. This is going to make it even worse, though. But it, it takes uh, a little bit of... Uh, this is uh, uh, one more dash of confusion... Uh, and then we'll shake it and see what happens. And the dash of confusion is actually a dash of absolute clarity, but it's but it's uh, it's as confusing as this thing is for us culturally. And it comes from Jean Sullivan, the uh, French uh, fiction writer. Don't even try to understand this. This is like one of those mantras. Pretend that it's in pretend that it's in uh, Sanskrit. He says, "Desire has the power to arouse phantasms." 
while creating parallel paths by which to escape the fear that is the other side of desire. Desire has the power to arouse phantasms while creating parallel paths by which to escape the fear that is on the other side of desire. At one point this week, even though I was overwhelmed with work, I thought, I'm going to sit down and, and, uh, and make a paragraph out of that sentence so it's a little more intelligible. And I realized that I, it wouldn't, wouldn't, a paragraph wouldn't do it, and I didn't have time to do it. But I did want to at least get it on the record. Because it has something to do with the way in which we get entangled in these crazy episodes and uh, get lost in the mythology that drives them and uh, finally come to the place where we can accept or participate in the sacrificial orgies that too often punctuate them. So I just wanted to look for a minute at, at examples in the text where the lines of natural affection are having to be interrupted so as to polarize the situation. Now, ultimately, the polarizing the situation would be the community versus the perceived uh, polluter or the perceived problem. Seen from outside of its myth, it's the community versus the scapegoat. But notice how subtly these things are done. Cornwall and Regan show up right after Edmund has convinced Gloucester that his son has uh, attempt, is making an attempt on his life. And Gloucester says to Regan, Oh, madam, my old heart is cracked. It's cracked. This is a moment of, of uh, real spiritual potential when the heart is cracked. Dante wrote so masterfully about this, the breaking of the heart. Dante says the, the, a broken heart is the beginning of a new life. So new consciousness comes from a broken heart. So it's a tremendous spiritual opportunity at this moment. My old heart is cracked. And his old heart was, you know, overdue for a crack, as most of our old hearts are. So he says, my old heart is cracked. It's been cracked by utter lies, you see. But the, nevertheless, it's a moment where his heart is cracked. And Regan knows exactly what to do with cracked hearts. You, 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 you pick up the shards and turn them into weapons. Turn the grief into grieving. And so he's talking about his son, Edgar, whom he now thinks has a, has, is plotting his life. And Regan says, what? And, and of course, her object of contempt is Lear. Uh, so we have these two little units here that have each have a, a, an object of, uh, of fear and contempt. The Gloucester family is Edgar, and Lear's family is Lear himself. So Regan says, what? Did my father's godson seek your life? He whom my father named your Edgar? And Gloucester says, Oh, lady, lady, shame would have it you. Was he not companion with the riotous knights that tended upon my father? You see what she's doing? Shakespeare is doing something, and Regan's doing something else. What Regan is doing is she's creating a conspiracy. She's going to form an alliance brief though it will be, with Gloucester based on the fact that their two enemies are in conspiracy. Those two are in alliance. So, but, and it's the polarization across family lines 
of the crazy. It is also Shakespeare's way of saying that Edgar and Lear are spiritually related. It's an anachronism. This play is 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 uh, situated in pagan Britain before the Christianization of Britain. So the idea of the godson, there's, a, there's several of these anachronisms in the play. It doesn't matter to Shakespeare. What's he care? But he's making a point. They're spiritually related. Oswald is a servant of Regan in Cornwall, and he is a spineless sycophant who uh, just does whatever he has to do uh, to please his employers. Kent is a true and loyal servant, more loyal in a way than Lear wants or deserves. When Lear decides to do this foolish thing of abandoning the throne and and throwing his daughter out and uh, and uh, and so on, Kent tells him he shouldn't do it. Tells him it's stupid, and Lear rages at him. And Kent says, "Be Kent unmannerly when Lear is mad. What wouldst thou do, old man? Thinkest thou that duty shall have dread to speak when power to flattery bows?" To plain, plainness honors bound when majesty falls to folly. Kill thy physician and thy fee bestow upon the foul disease. In other words, Kent says, look, I'm just going to tell you what the truth is. I don't care what you think. It, highly, highly resistant to the mimesis, the imitative power of the event. Now, most of the time when, one, when, one, when the underling to the king is standing around and the king goes into a a stake, everybody in proximity goes into the state. It's the way, way it works. Well, Kent is resistant to that. And he stands right there in the presence of the sovereign lord of the nation and tells him the truth. When uh, Cornwall puts Kent in the stock, in the stocks for, for being truthful, Cornwall says, fetch forth the stocks. You stubborn, ancient knave, you reverend braggart, we'll teach you. And Kent said, Kent says, Sir, I am, a, I am too old to learn. And this is the theme about Kent that runs through here, which is that he's ancient, that he's old. He's only 48. I think it's important to see Kent as an ancient in the sense that he is an old-fashioned guy. He is an old-fashioned guy. And it's just as true of Shakespeare's time as it is of our time. To say somebody is an old-fashioned guy is to say that the cultural order that had been intact at the moment of their upbringing, say, or even perhaps earlier, has been internalized, and they carry it around. And the more it falls apart in the society around them, the more they look like an artifact of a, of a bygone age. And so he's referred to as an ancient or as an antique one. I think it's because he's old-fashioned in that sense. He still carries those traditional uh, values and lives by them. It, it's Oswald who is the modern one. And this is, this is not something that was invented in the 20th century. Even. Shakespeare is, understands that. The modern is the one who uh, no longer is uh, in, you know, is no longer held sway by these earlier uh, and admittedly artificial cultural forms. This is not to this is not to idolize these cultural forms; they're artificial. But at least Kent's living by me. He feels them to be valid. Oswald's ready to go in any direction at any time. 
in that sense, he's the he's the prototypical modern person in in whatever age. So Kent says of Oswald, a tailor made him. Whatever's in fashion, he's up to date. And uh, Cornwall asked Kent what makes him so angry. About, what, what about Oswald angers Kent? And Kent says that such a knave as this should wear a sword who wears no honesty. Such smiling rogues as these, like rats, oft bite the holy cords of twain which are too entrenched to unloose. To bite the holy cords of twain which are too entrenched to unloose. The holy cords are the bonds of are the family bonds, the bonds of affection. Uh, so a little somebody who's dissolving genuine affections in society according to something else. So he goes on to say, let me go back. Such smiling rogues as these, like rats off, bite the holy cords of twain which are too entrenched to unloose. Smooth every passion that in the natures of their lords rebel, bringing oil to fire, snow to colder moods, renege, affirm, and turn their halcyon beaks with every gale and vary of their master. So they, their masters get angry, they get angry. Their masters uh, get, uh, you know, get hurt, they get hurt. Their masters hold a grudge, they hold a grudge. Completely subservient and mimetic with regard to passions, and therefore incapable of providing a kind of firebreak. In scene one of Act Two, there's this little tease. Uh, Edmund is talking to one of the the uh, courtiers at Gloucester's castle, whose name is Curran, and Curran says to Edmund, have you heard the news abroad? I mean the whispered ones, for they are yet but ear-buzzing arguments. And Edmund says he hasn't. And Curran says, have you heard of no likely wars twixt the Dukes of Albany? Excuse me, twixt the Dukes of Cornwall and Albany? And Edmund says he hasn't heard of anything like that. And Curran says, well, you will. And exits. And it's just Shakespeare's way of very early in the play, it's total surprise. There's absolutely no indication of it. But it's Shakespeare's way of teasing us. And because then we start to we see all this that's happening and it looks like what's being played out is that the sisters are in league to get rid of Lear and so on. But then we start to see very slowly insinuate into the play this little references to the inevitable, what's pre the predictable state of affairs. Lear, has, Lear as a as an uh, as a force to be reckoned with, vanishes very quickly. It's measured the way Shakespeare does it is he measures it because it's it's really a metaphysical sort of thing. He has to measure it by something, so he uses the number of knights that follow him. He's given a hundred to start with. Right away they cut it to fifty, and the next time it's brought up they cut it to twenty-five. And while they're talking about it, it goes ten, five, one. Why do you need any? I mean, it's just an absolute sweep. And Lear is nothing. He suddenly, and then they just shut the door on him. And then you say, okay, now, how long before the two alliances that brought about that complete vanquishing of their opponent are at each other's throat? The conflict between the dukedoms is a symptom of the cultural crisis Shakespeare has been developing as the social backdrop 
to Lear's tragedy. In Act Three, everything in the play stands revealed in the metaphor of the violent storm. The storm is the metaphor for the inner psychological crisis in Lear and the climatic synonym for the Byzantine stratagem of his daughters as their alliance against Lear turns into a mimetic struggle between themselves. Each of these uh, foci, one the psychological crisis in Lear and one the social uh, conflict in the kingdom, each is the predictable result of what Girard calls the crisis of conflictual undifferentiation, which is a polysyllabic uh, mouthful. The crisis of conflictual undifferentiation. That's essentially what uh, Ulysses was talking about in that speech from Troilus and Cressida that, that we quoted a couple of weeks ago. Lear gives the crisis its most full-throated expression in Act 3, Scene 2, when he is in the storm and he begins to uh, rave at the, at the storm itself. Blow winds, crack your cheeks, rage, blow, you cataracts and hurricanoes, spout till you have drenched our steeples, drowned the cocks. You sulfurous and thought-executing fires, vaunt couriers of oak-cleaving thunderbolts, singe my white head, and thou all-shaking thunder, strike flat the thick rotundity of the world. So it's an invitation to for the, for the storm and the gods that might be presiding over it to unleash their full force until all the world has been turned into chaos. And I want to call particular attention to drenched our steeples, drowned our cocks. Great image here of, a, of just exactly what uh, Ulysses was talking about in his speech in Troilus and Cressida. A chaos that overwhelms the two... Uh, points on the horizon that represent a sense of order and direction. The, the, the church, of course, again, it's anachronism. There isn't one in pre-Christian Britain, but the church as the center of the community, the steeple as the recognizable uh, center, which gives, which is the, the axis mundi, the, the, the center of the community, and the weathercock, which which tells us which way the wind is blowing, orients us in another in another order. So these are symbols of of some kind of order and orientation. And the and the storm now is overwhelming. So there's just utter chaos. So the crisis of conflictual undifferentiation. Two symbols of of the differentiated cultural order being overwhelmed by the by the storm. Shakespeare invites us to. Focus now on the inner psychological or spiritual struggle of Lear, and now on the maneuverings and machinations of his daughters. There's one drama going on, which is the collapse of culture, but it's being played out on two levels, each with its specific dramatic issues at stake. First, the issue is can Lear avoid total mental disintegration into madness. And at the second level, the issue is, 
can his kingdom avoid total social disintegration into chaos? There's one passage where the two aspects of this one crisis come together in an interesting way, and it's in, in Act 2, Scene 4. When Lear renounces his kingdom, gives his kingdom over to his daughters, he retains the title of king and a hundred knights. And what happens immediately is the, is the, the number of knights begins to be cut down. Once the, the, the thing is halved, then it starts to fall very quickly. Boom, 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 boom. Why even one? And Regan says, what need one? Zero. Nothing. No followers. And Lear goes into a, into a, uh, a fit, as he usually does. And he calls on the gods. You see me here, you gods, a poor old man as full of grief as age, wretched in both. If it be you that stirs these daughters' hearts against their father, fool me not so much to bear it tamely. Touch me with noble anger and let not women's weapons, water drops, stain my man's cheek. No, you unnatural hags. I will have such revenges on you both that all the world shall... And he breaks off. He doesn't know what to, how to finish that. I will do such things. And still, again, he, he breaks off. What they are yet, I know not, but they shall be the terrors of the earth. You think I'll weep. No, I'll not weep. And at that moment, thunder sounds. The sound of the storm increases. I'll not weep, and the storm grows greater. I have full cause of weeping, but this heart shall break into a hundred thousand flaws, or ere I'll weep. Oh, fool, I shall go mad. Well, with this passage, we can be more specific about the issues involved, respectively, in the plays to Fosa. Uh, Lear's inner processes and the social order. The beginning and the end of that little speech allow us to, to take, go deeper with the issue. You think I'll weep? I'll not weep. He says. And Regan says, at the beginning of that, what said it all? She says, why one followers? Can Lear solve his fit of madness by turning the, the mind-shattering load of grief into a socially useful grievance. And in the social order, can the social order, at the center of which are Lear's vicious daughters and Gloucester's vicious son, can the social order solve, in quotation mark, marks, its conflictual undifferentiation, charge term, by successfully sacrificing or expelling a prominent victim? The key to the question in the social order is whether or not a complete polarization can be achieved, whether Lear can be stripped of all his followers, just as Jesus was finally abandoned by everyone in the Passion story. So for the sacrificial solution to the cultural crisis to really be achieved, you have to have a total polarization, unanimity minus one, no followers. And this is just what's happening. He starts out with 100, and it's eaten away very quickly until Regan says, why need one? I want to take up, first of all, Lear's inner experience and then come back to the question. But I'm taking off from this one speech. At the beginning of the speech, we have no followers. So I want to pursue that in a few minutes. 
in, in the heart of Lear's response is this uh, determination on his part to turn grief into grievance. Anger is socially utilitarian. Somebody can do something with anger. You can anger anger has a has a kind of vector to it. You can point it in some direction. Uh, you can you can make it work for you. You can do something with anger. But sorrow has only spiritual consequences. It's not a it's not socially useful emotion, but anger is. And if one is trying to stay engaged in the sociodrama, and there is this load of pain and disappointment, one tries to get it converted into anger because then one can use it. In other words, Lear does not want to feel the sorrow and pain that that load uh, of emotion has in it. He wants to convert all or as much of it as possible into vengeance, revenge, anger, a determination to get even, that kind of thing. But to the degree that he would, is able to do that, he abandons the spiritual opportunity that grief presents. The great expert on this, as he was the great expert on a number of things, I think, is Dante. In La Vita Nuova, Dante speaks of what he calls intelligenza nova, a new intelligence. And he says, this is in the English translation of this poem he wrote in La Vita Nova, he says, a new intelligence that weeping love bestows on him attracts him ever higher. And the uh, upshot of what Dante is saying is that a broken heart is the beginning of a new consciousness, a new life. So Lear says, at one point, oh, how this mother wells up toward my heart. Hysterica passio, down thou climbing sorrow. Thy elements below. Sorrow. Keep the sorrow down. He doesn't want sorrow. He wants anger. Because if he can get it converted into anger, he can, with a good deal of effort, climb back into that social snake pit that he has momentarily been expelled from. And it's the only world he knows. Now, then the question is, can the social order uh, do what it wants to do? What it wants to do, I say it because it does operate like an organism. No one particular person creates, it's, it's not a conspiracy. Uh, it's a kind of social organism that the, the social body politic, so to speak, begins to move in, in these predictable ways so that so that uh, conspiracy theorists can have a field day anytime one of these crises comes on. Because in retrospect, it looks conspiratorial. Because it all falls into place. The social organism now begins to take over. And what it, the way it tries to solve the problem is complete polarization. That, in the first instance, all of the, uh, all of the community versus this one rejected, wretched one, the wretched one, or what the Greeks call the pharmacos, scapegoat. Uh, Regan says, after this discussion of whether or not he, how many followers he's going to have, 
She says, for this particular, I'll receive him gladly, but not one follower. No follower. And Goneril says, so am I proposed. Where is my Lord Gloucester? And Cornwall says, followed the old man forth. It's like a little play right there. Not one follower. And then somebody says, well, where's Gloucester? And the word is, followed the old man forth. So right away, even when they're discussing how there's going to be no followers, we're told immediately that there will be followers. Now, Gloucester at that point goes out and comes back in and really doesn't become what you call, in a spiritual sense, a follower of Lear until he is blinded. But it's a, it's a hint that there will be followers out into this wilderness place. In other words, neither will Lear be allowed to convert his grief into grievance, nor will the social order be allowed to solve its problem by a successfully accomplished sacrificial solution. So what I want to look at here for the next minute or two is who the followers are. In Act 3, Scene 1, on the heath when the storm is underway, Kent says, where is the king? And the gentleman says, contending with the fretful elements. And Kent says, who is with him? And the gentleman says, none but the fool. So again, followers are going out with Lear. In scene four of act two, the fool says, that sir which serves and seeks for gain and follows but for form will pack when it begins to rain and leave thee in the storm. But I will tarry, the fool will stay. And, and there's, there's sentiment like that in many of, of the plays. The, the one that I'm most fond of is Eno Barbus's in Antony and Cleopatra, where <clears throat> Antony is, uh, has lost the naval battle to Caesar, and Eno Barbus uh, begins to ponder what to do, whether to abandon Antony's cause or to stay with him, even though he's a loser. And Eno Barbus says, The loyalty well held to fools does make our faith mere folly. Yet, he that can endure to follow with allegiance a fallen lord does conquer him that did his master conquer and earns a place in the story. It's an absolutely marvelous thing. It's filled with, uh, with uh, Christian implications. He that can endure to follow with allegiance a fallen lord does conquer him that did his master conquer. That is to say, he conquers the one who conquered his master because he chooses to follow, follow a fallen boy, and in so doing, earns a place in the story. So we have Gloucester coming out into the heath, the fool going out into the heath, and then, of course, we have Edgar, who has to flee for his life. Lear is out in the storm going mad, and Edgar is out in the storm practicing madness. See, I, think that's the way to, I think that's the way to understand Edgar. And not that he's feigning mad. He is feigning madness. But in another way, he's practicing madness. For Shakespeare, madness and holiness are very close to each other. Both are, uh, both involve a break with the kind of normal consciousness which is shot through with social 
and psychological illusion. Shakespeare always has a madness and holiness having ha, being related. So Edgar goes to the Heath to practice madness. He he goes. He says he bethought to take the basis in most porous shape that ever penury and contempt of man brought near to beast. He says, my face I'll grime with filth, blanket my loins, else my hair in knots, and with presented nakedness, outface the winds and persecutions of the sky. So the storm is a metaphor for the persecutorial social order. He has been chased out of town, and now he's going to go naked in the storm. The country, he says, gives me proof and precedent of bedlam beggars who with roaring voices strike in their numbed and mortified bare arms pins, wooden pricks, nails, sprigs of rosemary, and with this horrible object from low farms, poor pelting villages, sheep coats and mills, sometime with lunatic bands, sometime with prayers enforce their charity. Poor Turley God, poor Tom, that's something yet. Edgar, I nothing am. It's another anachronism. The Bedlam Hospital, which in Shakespeare's time was a hospital for the for the mentally ill, was originally St. Mary of Bethlehem, and in the in the slang had become Bedlam Hospital. Sometimes with lunatic bands, sometimes with prayers, enforcing his charity. So someone who goes out to practice the kind of complete renunciation that uh, that sometimes the monks and ascetics would practice. I didn't mention Kent, but of course Kent is is uh, is following and assisting Lear, and Kent is an outcast himself. So in the on the the uh, storm-swept heath, we have. Mad Lear, Mad Tom, Retarded Fool, Blind Gloucester, and Banished Kent. In other words, the misfits, the rejects, the outcasts. And in the castles, we have Cornwall, Goneril, Regan, Edmund, and Oswald, the cultural stalwarts. And in both, there is a kind of mimesis going on in both arenas. And so we're invited to look and see what's happening inside and look and see what's happening outside. And what's happening outside is that people are learning from each other how better to see miracles. Kent, I think, lays the key to this when he's in the stocks and he says, nothing almost sees miracles but misery. So all the people in the storm-swept heath are learning how to see miracles. Don't think that's the way to look at it. And all the people in the castles are like Mrs. Shortly with the peacocks in the Flannery O'Connor story with the peacock's tail coming right down in front of her face. And she's looking right through it at some little sociodrama. The people in the castles are completely preoccupied with manipulating the world in order to get what they want. And that's the that's the state of mind which is utterly impervious to miracles.
And the recognition of miracles out in the, in the heat is slow in coming. The storm is raging and Kent finds a little hovel and he invites Lear to come into the hovel and uh, shows him the way. And Lear says, my wits begin to turn. Come on, my boy. How dost, thou, how dost my boy? Art cold? I'm cold myself. Where is this straw, my fellow, talking to Kent? Where is this straw? The art of our necessities is strange and can make vile things precious. Poor fool and knave is fool. I have one part in my heart that's sorry yet for thee. So Lear goes into the hovel, and then in the hovel he sees poor Tom, Edgar putting on the show of being this crazy bedlam beggar. And Lear says, Is man no more than this? There's three on us are sophisticated, thou art the thing itself. Unaccommodated man is no more but such a poor bare forked animal as thou art. Off, off, you lendings. He starts to strip his own clothes off. Come, unbutton here, he says. Get these clothes off. Down to nothing. There is a kind of what we might call positive mimesis operate the people out there the outcast they're really the ecclesia Greek word for church rejected banished with nothing they begin to have an influence on one another Edgar begins to see in Lear's affliction something about his own how light and portable my pain seems now when that which makes me bend makes the king bow. That last couplet is shot through with Christian implications as well, of course. 